Hello, Village Church. How you doing? I'm Pastor Kurt, and I'm so honored to be here. This is my first time ever at Village Church, and the fact that you showed up on any of these campuses is a total and complete privilege to me. Calgary, Langley North, Langley South, Surrey, and Coquitlam. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a wildly successful human being. You really are. You showed up today. Um, I'm a pastor at a church, uh, one of the senior pastors at a church at Bayside Church in Sacramento, California. My founding pastor, Ray Johnson, has been up here, and it really upset me because uh, he came here and then came back to our team and told us that we were all losers and that you guys were so much better than us. It cost me so much work for him to come up here. So it's a real honor and a power and a privilege to be here. I'm going to talk to you this morning about the issue of prayer. i got to make a confession. I didn't grow up in a religious home. I'm not great at prayer. Prayer is not a thing that I do really super great. In fact, I ran across this prayer. See if you identify with this. This prayer kind of describes my prayer life. It says, Dear Lord, so far today, I am doing all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or self-indulgent. I have not whined or complained or eaten any junk food. I have not been late to a meeting. I have not overcharged my credit card. I have not neglected assignments. However, in a minute, Lord, I will get out of this bed, and then I will really need your help. <laughs> Prayer is a bit of a mystery to me. I'm not a contemplative guy, but I love philosophically, theologically, and experientially what prayer actually does to our life when we actually understand it. I was given three questions, 15,000 people service. These are three awesome, great questions. And the questions are simply just this. First, is prayer real? Is this something that we're just imagining? Is it an emotional or is it a real experience? And then second one, here's the big theological one. Can we change God's mind? What is the nature of our relationship with God? And question number three is, why doesn't God answer prayer? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to flip these. We're going to go with three first. Why? Because it's easier and you don't know me yet. And I'm going to just go with that one, okay? And then we're going to go to number two, which is the hard one. And I'm going to say some controversial stuff, and I'll probably never get invited back here ever again. But I'm tucking it in the middle, so if I do say something too controversial, you'll forget it by the time I answer number one. Is that a good agenda? Let's do this. Let's go with number three first. Why doesn't God answer prayer? Well, see, here's this thing. I've got this Baptist theologian guy in my life I love, Dr. Bob Utley. And Utley is from the American South, and he's got the most Southern accent. He's so Southern, you'd think he's not smart, but he's a very smart guy. And what Utley says is this. He says, what we want is clarity, and what God wants is tension. What we want is clarity, what God wants is tension. You see, the Near East mind that God inspired to write most of our Bible didn't actually want a Wikipedia page of clarity. They wanted the tension in between the truth that we had to live into. And what happens to us in our North American Western mindset is we want bullet points that are easily explainable. And this is where prayer is a little messy. It's a tension, not a clarity. Here's a perfect example of the tension that's taught throughout the Bible. First John 5, it says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything, anything, God, I want a sports car, and I want to eat all the tacos I want, and I want to never be fat. That's anything, right? If we ask anything according to his will, did you feel the tension right there? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, he hears us. If you're circling in your Bible, and I hope that you do write in your Bible, circle that phrase, underline it twice, and draw a little unicorn next to it. Because that's the key. He hears us. And if we know, and he knows that he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have 
what we ask of him. Here's the tension. God always hears and he always answers. This is a really, really simple answer. Why doesn't God answer prayer? Well, he does answer. He answers all the time, only according to his will. Three implications of this. And the first one is this. God is answering, but we do not want to hear what he has to say. This is the number one pastoral thing that I come up with. People, they're like, they come all the time and say, God, my wife is so frustrating. She's so frustrating. I said, have you prayed about it? She said, I'm praying all the time. God is not answering. I'm like, yes, he is. You're not hearing what he has to say. Lord, why won't my wife encourage me? Why won't my wife build me up? Why is she always nagging me? Because you're a horrible human. You're horrible. You're selfish. You're mean. You're just, you come home, you lay on the couch and you belch. I'm on her side. God is answering. <laughs> you don't want to hear what he has to say. Lord, why am I still single? Lord, I want to be married like all my friends. I want to have a life with a wife and I want to be married. I want you to be married too. But you're a disaster. Okay, that's right. I have to say once a service at the village church, you're a disaster because that's Mark's favorite phrase. <laughs> you didn't think I was listening to the sermons? I'm so glad I didn't get the sermon on weed. So very glad. Anyway, <laughs> God, why won't you give me someone to date? Because I love other people and I don't want to inflict you upon them. God, why aren't you answering? Hello, I'm answering. You're not listening. You're deeply insecure. Let me massage some of that insecurity and build the identity of Christ into you and then I'll put someone in your life. Where are you, God? I'm right here. God's answering. Our ego doesn't want to hear him. What's the second thing? God answers, but much later than we like. Now, here's the thing. This is almost always, this, this question of why doesn't God answer prayer, the context of this is almost always in terms of a loved one who went through a hard thing and we prayed for a certain result that didn't happen. My mom had cancer, we prayed and prayed, she died. Listen, listen my friend, a uh, few years back, desperate dad calls me. He says, my daughter is having seizures, she's been having seizures for a year, there's nothing they can do to stop these seizures. Would the church pray for her? I came, we anointed her with oil, we laid hands on her according to scripture, we prayed in faith, a simple prayer. We just prayed in faith, she went to the doctor the next day, then uh, the brain uh, problem that she was having didn't show up on the scam. They did more and more and more and more and more tests over the next three or four months, more and more. She hasn't had a seizure since. That's been two years. I see this girl over, yeah, you can applaud for that. But, but make sure you applaud for this second story. Friend of mine, panic, comes and says, my mom has leukemia, would you pray for her? We show up at the house, we lay hands on her, we anoint her, same exact prayers, same exact faith, same people prayed for her. And God showed up. God, I mean, we were all in that, and I'm not an emotional, ooey-gooey uh, guy. I, I, I'm more of a thinker than a ooey, and God showed up in this room, and she went to the doctor the next day, and she still had leukemia. And six months later, she died. She reconciled with her sons during that time. She reconciled in her relationship with God during that time, but her body wasn't healed. Let me tell you that the same result is happening with the girl that was healed of seizures and the girl that, and the lady that was healed of leukemia. It's just one got her healing in heaven and one got a healing, temporary healing here on earth. In the end, God would heal both. But it, it's his timing in his way. 
Here's the third implication. There's many more than three, but you know, I got 40 minutes here. So God withholds his answer to draw us further into relationship. Sometimes the timing of the answer and the type of the answer, God's got a bigger motive than just answering the prayer. He actually wants to be in relationship with you. I lived as a missionary for 27 years before coming to Bayside, which means I lived on faith every single month. We were dependent on generous people supporting our ministry, and we didn't know what was gonna come in one month to the next. And I wanna tell you, after 27 years, years of praying, I never missed a bill and I never missed a meal. God, look at my profile. I got 20 pounds to lose, people. God is faithful. God provides and God answers. But here's what I've learned. He always waits to the last stinking second. One time I was complaining to God. I'm like, God, you've been so faithful. You, you answer so many prayers. Why the last second? And he said, because if I didn't wait to the last second, Kurt, you would stop praying. And I like praying, Kurt. I like the Kurt on his knees. He's humbler and nicer and kinder, and he's a little bit more empathetic, and I like that Kurt. And if I just did what you wanted, like a drive through restaurant, that Kurt would go away. So God wants to draw me in to a dependent, humble relationship with him so he sticks to his timing. And I found God to be very, very stubborn in this way. So, all right, let's keep moving. Uh, question two, can we change God's mind? So I just want to look at the camera and say, thank you, Mark, for giving me this one. This, this one, by the way, theologians are angry people. Did you know that? I mean, they are theologian men, not the women. The men theologians, are, they don't like each other. They write books at each other. And this is an angry, angry question. In fact, I'd say uh, from about 1999 to this year, this is the deepest theological question being argued. People are writing books back and forth. And I will probably be disowned by a whole camp of Christianity for what I'm about to say. But I want to tell you, I have spoken on apologetics as one of my expertise in 45 different states and four different continents. And I, I travel around working with universities students for uh, over a couple decades, and, I, and when this question comes up over and over again, and I have studied it, I have listened, I have read, and I have studied, and I have listened, and I have read, and I've studied and listened and read, and here is my greatly academic, theological, uh, two decades worth of theological experience into this question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Most of the time when we say that there's a mystery, what we're saying is that it's a cop-out. We don't want to study enough to actually get to the right answer. But in the issue of how does our interaction work with God, are you a moral being responsible for your actions or did God make you a bag of chemicals moving through an environment and everything's been predecided for you? And between those two tensions, there's a really, really difficult and mysterious answer. I don't know. There is a mystery and a tension in this idea of the theological nature of God. Okay, turn to your neighbor and say, turn on your frontal lobe right now because I'm going to teach you a little theology. I'm going to give you a spectrum of the two different theological camps. So there's a, there's a big spectrum and there's a lot of different positions in this spectrum. You can kind of start your journey of studying this and figure out where you are on this spectrum. But here's the idea. The theological context is simply this. There is one side over here on this side of the spectrum that's called the openness of God. And by openness, it doesn't mean that we can define God in any way we want. That's not what openness theology people believe. They believe that that means relationally. God is open to you having input into your relationship with God. God is not fixed the future. He's open. God's knowledge is dynamic. In this point of view, and I'm going to overstate this and make it too simple, but in this point of view, what God is saying is that 
I really am going to limit my knowledge of the future so that you and I can have a relationship where you can have real input into what happens in your life. The word picture here is God as the master chess player. God's going to win the chess match, but he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future, and he's so much better at us than chess. He's going to work it all out according to his will, and God will win the day. Most classic evangelical theologians don't like this point of view. This is why it's so controversial. How can you say that God actually allows a puny little speck of a human like Kurt Harlow to have some input into the future. And here's the criticism that the openness people say back to them. They say, listen, you guys were way too influenced by the Greeks. That's right, I'm bringing some history into this. What happened is in the first 300 years of Christianity, Hellenistic Greek philosophy got into the theology of the church, and what these theologians are saying is, you guys have become mean, little, rigid, unrelational people based on the Greek influence in your theology, not the biblical idea of this really relational God who's leading people to mountains and telling them to kill their sons unless they pray a certain way, and he's going to bring a certain catastrophe unless we pray a certain way, and then he changes his mind. They say this is a way more biblical point of view based on the history, especially of the Old Testament, and and, and this is too Greek. You're making it all, you're, we're just robots. God has decided my future. Okay, that's why I didn't go into dance. That's why I went into theology right there. What's the other, are you, are you just getting anything out of this? What's the other side of the spectrum? The aseity of God. Turn to your neighbor and say aseity. Now you got a good theological word. Aseity is simply just um, this idea that God is self-contained. CID is just a fancy $3 theological word for God is self-contained. It means God's knowledge is absolute. He doesn't need you, never will need you. You have no contribution. You bring nothing to the equation. The word picture is God is the parent who'd know you would change your mind so it feels like you're changing God's mind, but God is manipulating you. You already changed your mind. So it's, it's like this, um, this dad how many here of you, you small kids? Any campus you're on, I want to see your hand. Where are your small kids? Okay, so the dad says to the small kids, we're going to drive from Vancouver, and we're going to go to Disneyland. We're going to go on a certain weekend. This is the only weekend I can go. We're going to go, and here's the thing. I'm going to only tell you once. If you misbehave in the car, I will turn the car around, and we will not go to Disneyland. The kids are so excited. They get in the car on the day of the big trip. They start driving, and they just get across the border, and all of a sudden, a fight breaks out between the kids, and the dad's like, that's it. We're not going to Disneyland. And the kid's just it's wailing and gnashing his teeth. No, we'll be good. No, I warned you. I told you there was only going to be one warning. I already warned you. We're turning back around. And the kids are just destroyed. They're distraught. They can't believe the whole trip is canceled. They go into their rooms. They're just all week. They're depressed. Finally, on Thursday night, the dad says, all right, we'll try to go to Disneyland one more time on Friday. But you kids better be well-behaved. They get in the car and the whole trip from Vancouver to Anaheim, they are perfect in the park. They're perfect in the hotel room. They're perfect. And the mom says at the end of the first night, that was such a smart idea to buy the tickets actually for this weekend and not last weekend. <laughs> Some of you are going to use that idea, aren't you? The point of it is, in this point of view, God already knows the outcome it's the, the process of praying is more kind of for our maturity. The problem I have with that is changing our hearts even is some sort of, in a way, contributing to the future of God. So this is a difficult thing. The criticism of the openness people is that it reduces God and changes classical evangelical theism. This idea that God is open and limits his knowledge reduces the awesomeness of God. And by the way, you know which one I agree with? Both of them. 
Whenever I'm reading one of theology or the other, I go, there is some points and there's some actually understanding here. You know what this is like for me? The problem with both positions is they both put God inside of time. Okay, I got you to think with me. Here's the thing. If you were born blind, if you were born absolutely blind, no sense of light or color at all, but yet you had a passion for the idea of color, and so you studied color in every sample and fashion. You studied uh, scientifically, you started particle wave theory, you studied uh, additional light and a subtractive light. You studied it theologically, you studied it culturally. What did the East feel about? What did the West feel about? What did, what did, what did great artists throughout history feel about color? You could become the number one expert on color in the whole world, but because you are blind in one way, you don't understand color at all. A five-year-old with a green crayon understands color better than you, the greatest expert on color the earth has ever seen. Because you have never been in color. You and I exist in time. God created time and is over time and exists outside of time. Therefore, for us to understand God's true perspective on how I can be morally responsible and you could actually be morally responsible and yet we interact with a sovereign God who doesn't have limited knowledge. I don't believe God limits his knowledge of the future. He doesn't have just knowledge of right now. God knows. And how that works, well, I can't explain and I'm glad I can't explain it because no one wants a God with my school marks. Oh, that's funnier than you laughed at. <laughs> Believe me, no one wants a God with my school marks. I don't want a God I can perfectly explain in every situation. My best explanation is to say this, is you're like a child in your, in your response to God. Here's 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12. And a I love this passage because it's so often misinterpreted. This passage comes right before this comes right before the famous love passage in 1 Corinthians. Are you familiar with this passage? Love is kind. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Love holds hands. Love skips through the park. And um, that's a paraphrase. Um, and the thing is, we read that passage at weddings, right? How many have ever heard that passage at weddings? Okay. It, that's not what it's meant for. The love is passage in Corinthians is a passage for a divided church. Paul's actually looking at him going, quit being dunderheads and actually love each other. And right after that passage, he says this, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. What is childlike reasoning? It's very simple. It's additional reasoning. One plus one equals two. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Oftentimes this verse is translated or, or interpreted to say, oh, grow up. And there is a sense of that, but I think it's more often said this, you don't understand it all. That's okay. Paul was fine with that. He preached about the mystery of Christ coming, the mystery of Christ dying, the mystery of Christ being in our lives. It's okay to have some mystery in our lives. Here's the tension. You are responsible. So when you pray, pray like someone who has some money in the game. And also God knows everything. This almost says God knows. God knows when you're down, he knows when you're up, he knows when you're here, and he knows when you're there, you can't escape God. The most encouraging thing I could ever tell you is this, God knows. And the most fearful thing I could ever say to you is, God knows. Which brings us to our next question, and it's simply this. Is prayer real? Is prayer real? 
I'm going to end on this one because it's so easy. And the answer is yes. God is passionately and tirelessly relational. In every way, God wants to interact with you in prayer. I can't tell you the exact dynamic of how this works, but I can tell you what the heart of God is because that's the most unmysterious thing that there is in the Bible. It's the most plain and main thing. In Genesis, when we walked away from God, when we said, no, Lord, when we said, creator, we know better than you as the creature, what was God's response? God's very first response to sinful man was, where are you? Where are you? And he came seeking us from Genesis to Revelation. God is the God who's pressing in the distance between us and himself. In the Gospels, the name of Jesus is Emmanuel, the God who is with us. In Philippians, it says he did not grasp at heaven as something that he had a right to hold on to, but that he came to earth humbling himself. Why? To service, and not just to service, but to service ultimately to die on the cross with us. God has has proven that prayer is a real thing by pressing into relationship with us. I love Colossians. We just finished Colossians at our church. And here's what Paul preaches of all of Colossians in just two sentences. God fully came in Jesus. Not a part of God, not sort of God, not an angel, but God fully came. Why? To fully die for our sin. Why? So that he could fully live inside of you. What is the mission of God? To take away every single obstacle between you and me. He wants to fully be in our lives. Here's the theological context. There's only really four positions on this that you can have. The first one is atheist. What's the simple definition of atheist? We are alone. This is it. Turn your neighbor and say, you're the best thing in the universe. Some of you are not turning to your neighbor. Turn to your other neighbor. I don't care what campus you're on right now. Turn to your other neighbor and say, I hate it when he makes me turn to a neighbor. I hate that. <laughs> Americans hate it. Canadians really hate it. Like, I'm here to be polite and learn how to love people, not actually be polite and love people. <laughs> We're alone. You're the best thing in the universe. Agnostic. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And then this one. This one's not talked about. This one's talked about a lot. This one's talked about a lot. This one's never talked about. We are not interesting. What is a deist? A deist is a person who believes that the evidence suggests that there is a God, but that God has left us alone. The deist believes, oh, there's a thing called the fine-tuning of the universe. I'm sure that Mark's talked about this because Mark's a great apologist. And, and, uh, and the fine-tuning of the universe, I think, is the best and strongest argument for theism there is. And it simply means this. The entire universe, not just our world, but the entire universe, including all the physical laws, both micro and metro. Um, thank you. Thank you. Someone said it right there. You'll have to say it in all the services. I don't know if I got on the tape. But both micro and macro, thank you, lead us to believe that the universe has one purpose, and that is to create life, and especially intelligent human life, okay? So they say, okay, I see there's a God. He just doesn't love us. We're just not interesting. And then the last position is we are known. The theist believes that the evidence points that there is a God, and not only is there a God, but the God interacts with his creation. Listen, I, I really, I have a lot of atheist friends. I get it. I get it. I understand the problems there, and there are some compelling arguments. 
I have a lot of agnostic friends, especially what they call model agnostics. These are not just like, I'm an agnostic because I haven't thought about it. It's an agnostic who's really thought about it hard. And I want to tell you, this to me is the strongest second position other than this, the model agnostic. This is the one I don't get at all. I, I remember when my children were born and, 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 and the, the, the person that coached us in the Lamaze class said, you will go through a bonding experience. When your child is born, you'll go through a bonding experience. And I was like, oh, I don't know, that's emotional stuff. And I went in there and they handed that little baby to me and it wasn't like the movies. In the movies, they're like, wah, wah. You know, in, the, in real life, they sound like little baby goats, don't they? He just, the, the, he just looked at me and went, just, and a powerful bonding experience. And she was like, give the baby back. I was like, no, he's mine. Get away, nurse, you evil nurse. Because that's this powerful, unexplainable love for this thing that my wife and I had produced together. I just don't get this. I think you're very interesting. And I think you are very, very known. You know, that's not a conclusion that I came to um, lightly. I grew up in a completely unchristian home. Complete. We went to Catholic Mass like twice a year. Um, had a great experience in the Catholic Church. Nothing negative at all happened in my life at all. But I just was, I was, I didn't know the difference in the Old and New Testament. I didn't know the difference between my religion and Buddhism. I didn't know anything. We are not a theological home. Um, the first kegger of beer I ever drank, my mom bought me for me in seventh grade. I stole marijuana from my dad. I, I, I lived in a house that that was not uh, what it was about. And, 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 and yet... Uh, when I got into high school, I was severely depressed and completely and entirely distracted and absolutely alone in the universe. I was, I was socially awkward. I was academically unchallenged, and, and, and I was alone. The one thing I did is I read. I read and read and read and read and read and read, and I didn't have a friend in the world, and, and I read. And one day, I walked into this the, the, the public school library, and there was a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And I don't know if you know this book. It's an old book, but it's a book about end times prophecy in the Bible, and I read this book, and it scared the living daylights out of me because the book said that Jesus was going to come back at any minute, any, any minute, and I had yet to go on a date or kiss a girl. I thought the world's going to end before I get to kiss a girl. That put fear into my 16-year-old heart, deep, deep fear, and, um, and I thought, I'm going to read the Bible for myself. I'm going to read this Bible for myself, and this is the hubris of a teenager, and I'm going to prove this guy wrong, and so I went into the living room of our, our, I don't know if anyone grew up in this, but no one was allowed to live in our living room. Did anyone grow up in that household? We had shag carpet, burnt orange. There was a rake because the carpet was so thick. It was, like a, it was like a sand trap. And I went into that living room. There was one Bible in our house. No one ever read it. We kept the birth certificates in. It was this ginormous King James Bible. And I opened it to page one. And I started reading that thou begotten thine this and thine and that and begotten to thine. And I was like, I can't make sense of this. And so three or four times I tried to read the Bible. I had this urge to read it, but I couldn't do it. And one night, one night, I went into my sister's basement room to steal her double album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John, because she had said, don't you dare touch my albums. And when you grow up in a big family and you're the younger brother, if the sister says, don't touch them, you go steal them. Isn't that right? Anyone from a family here? And, and so I went into room. I separated the beads. <laughs> oh, you had beads in Canada too. Oh, good. Good, good, good. So I grew up in Omak. Does anyone know where Omak is? Just, just south of Penticton, just 40 minutes from the Canadian border. I grew up hating Canada because you killed us in soccer. Whenever we would go out there and play, it was obvious you know how to play soccer, and we didn't, but uh, or football, I don't know what you call it. But anyway, I went through the beads. I went through the beads. 
And I went to steal that album, and right next to it, I saw this book, and it said, Today's Modern English Version, The Bible. So I stole my first Bible. Just stole it. And I, and, I, and I went back up to my room, and I put the blankets over my head. It was such a cliche, and I took out the flashlight because I was afraid that my brother, who was in the bunk, they would think that I was, I was not very a manly thing to read the Bible. So I read it in secret, and I opened it up. And this Bible, I don't know, for whatever reason, it opened up to the New Testament. I didn't know the difference, New and Old Testament. It's the book of Matthew, the very first book. And I started reading the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, and I immediately forgot about all the issues of the end times and, and of reading the Bible front to cover. This book of Matthew was incredible. The way Jesus dealt with the religious leaders, the way he dealt with his disciples, the way he dealt with sinners, the way he dealt just with people, the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on, I mean, every night I would go and start reading the book of Matthew. Then, then I got to the book of Mark and I was like, this book is shorter. It's not very good. And so I went back to Matthew and I just read Matthew over and over and over again. And one night I got to Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. And here's what it says in Matthew 7, verse 7. It says, ask and you will be answered by God. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and he will open a door for you. And I thought in that moment, this is the most reasonable thing I've ever read about God, because if I were God, I would not be afraid of any question. And so a little tiny bit of faith came into my heart. Just a little seed of faith in a, in a theologically barren Spirit, a little bit of faith, and I thought, this is a fable, this is a myth, this is a story, it's a great story, but just maybe there is a God. Now, then I thought, no, if there was a God, he wouldn't talk to 16-year-old boys who have acne on their acne in eastern Washington state in the middle of nowhere. He would talk to kings and queens and princes and political leaders. He wouldn't come to a self-medicating ADHDDDDDDD kid. By the way, I didn't know I had ADHDDDDD. Because back in the day, you know, kids like me, they were just like, he's dumb. That's all they had, that's what they had. <laughs> they didn't have dyslexia, any of that stuff. That's a funny joke if you get, anyway. <laughs> and just say this, just little seed of faith, and I said, what if it's real? What if God could be that big? that 16-year-old boys in Eastern Washington State. And so I thought of the two hardest prayers I could pray. I said, God, if you answer prayer, I'm gonna pray the two hardest prayers I could pray, and I'm gonna ask, and if you answer, just like it says in Matthew 7, I'm gonna ask, and if you answer, then maybe, just maybe, you're real. So here's the two hardest prayers I could think to pray. God, prayer number one. Why won't Debbie Wildermuth go out on a date with me? Oh, you laugh now. That's a deeply theological question for a 16-year-old. Prayer number two. God, why do I fight with my mother so much? Went to sleep, got up, got dressed, went to school. Forgot, in the world of adolescence, forgot, forgot. Just walking down the school in the high school hallway, and all I could tell you is what my experience was, because I'm the number one expert on what happened to me and nothing else. I'm walking down this high school hallway, and I'm next to Russ Brantner's math geometry room, this guy that taught geometry. I'm walking right by it between second and third period, and God spoke to me. 
God answered my prayer. People say, was it audible? And I say, no, it was louder than that. It wasn't even a sentence. It was in my bone marrow. It was in my DNA. I got, I got this some sort of a divine touch, some sort of divine revelation that happened in my soul. And it wasn't words, but I could tell you exactly how to put it in words. The second that God spoke to me, I knew what the answer to both my prayers was. And it was simply this. God said, Kurt, here's the thing, Kurt. The answer to both your prayers is the same answer. The reason that girl won't go out with you and the reason you fight with your mom so much is because, Kurt, you are a profoundly selfish person. Kurt, you're a sinner. And, and here's the thing. When I say it out loud, it sounds like God was being so harsh to me, but there has never been a more benevolent, kind, grace-filled, loving, and compassionate thing said to me in all of my life because it was like God was saying, I know your sin more than even you know them, and yet I know you, and I love you. You have my attention. And my life was ruined. My life was wrecked. From that moment on, I decided that I had to, like, actually love other people and get to know this God. And even though it's hard and it's weird and it's mysterious and sometimes boring, I had to pray. I had to open my soul up and tell God what's going on in my life, even though I know he already knows. And I had to pour it all out in honesty. And I had to seek him and I had to find him. And I had to learn how to learn his word so I can learn the voice of God in me. I know some of you are right now going and say, that's all fine for you, Kurt. I've never had that experience. I've never felt that emotion. And here's what I've learned over the years. A lot of people seem to access God emotionally better than other people. There are a certain group of people, man, they feel God all the time. God's answering all their prayers. God, they get up in the morning, they're like, God, what cereal should I eat? Wheaties or cornflakes? Speak to me now, Lord. The bowl is before you. And boom, God speaks. I'm not that sort of person. And if you're the sort of person wired like me where you don't always feel God, here's my main exhortation to you in prayer. Don't give up. Because what I've found is even if it takes you longer, when you do break through and find that dynamic, it's more powerful than you could ever imagine and more life-changing. If you ask, you'll find. If you seek, you'll find. Keep knocking. Here's what Jesus says. He says, be like that persistent widow. Jesus says, be like this widow that went to a crooked judge. In this analogy, God compares himself to a crooked judge. And what she did is she banged on the door. And the judge thought, I don't want to deal with her. And she banged on the door. And the judge said, ah, she's not that important. The and she banged on the door. She's a woman. She's old. She, I'm a judge. And she banged on the door. And God says, that judge opens the door. I can't explain it all to you, but I'm telling you right now, for that loved one of yours, for your marriage, for your purpose and direction, for your identity, you get on your knees and you bang on that door. Yes, prayer is real. Yes, God hears your prayer. And yes, it is more mysterious and he is bigger and far more powerful than we could ever think. But if God could hear the immature and irreligious prayers of a 16-year-old boy, God can hear your prayers too. Can I pray for you right now?
God, there's someone here. You're answering them, but they don't want to hear exactly the way you're answering. I pray that you would open their heart to trust you. God, to obey is better. God, open their heart today. Someone here, they're wrestling with how all of this works. They're smart and they're caught up in their head a little bit and God bless them for being good thinkers. Lord, they're the ones that asked this question in the survey, but I pray that you would give them the freedom to take a step away from being too in their head for a moment and that they could open up their heart to the mystery of your sovereign power inviting them into relationship. In other words, God, give them faith that you're bigger than they could ask or imagine. And finally, Lord, there's someone here, they just, they just need you to come through. They have a sick relative. They have a hurting child. They have an empty marriage. They don't know what decision to make. And over them, I pray this simple childlike prayer. God, speak. Through your word, through your church, through our love for each other, God, speak. God, in the inner witness of your place fully in their life, God, speak at the DNA level at the bone marrow level. Show them that when we ask, you do answer, and that when we seek, we do find, and that you are the God who opens doors. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.